Welcome to Sweet Bitter, where we explore the untold history of women and queer pirates. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida. And Lisa Charlotte. This episode, we'll be diving into the sexy diaries of a 19th century queer marine, <laughs> Philip Van Buskirk. But before that, Elise is here to do some fact or fiction. So Elise, let's do this. All right. Good to see you. Good to see you. So yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. Oh, I didn't realize we were going to have a song. I know. Fact or fiction. Just like, is that song a pirate song? Oh, so okay. hard because like, like that specific song or like shanties in general? You can interpret and and specify however you want about this question. Okay. Right. I'm going to say that songs, yes. Yo, ho, ho, pirate's life for me. No. Okay. All right. All right. Good answer. <laughs> I am going to have to say I agree that they definitely sang songs on the ship. People just, people like to sing. That's just a, like... People were born to sing, mm. all three of us, especially, you know? Oh, especially Ooh. the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. I could go on a huge rant about that. Did you know that only, I, I, it's a very small percentage, but like 2% of the population is actually tone deaf. Like, Oh, really? Yeah, like 98% of the population like can sing. We That's just amazing. We're, we're not like, they only really encourage people to sing if they're like, wow, your voice is incredible. But every like person, all of us, obviously. like most people can sing. That's just like a rant about music. But I was talking to a friend about this the other day because she said she was tone deaf. And I was like, no, tone deaf means you're not hitting the correct pitches. Yes. Like, I think people say it when they mean like I'm not confident or I don't sing well or beautifully. Exactly. But it's like, no, no, you're singing the right notes. Exactly. Mm. Most people are not actually tone deaf. And yeah, people always say like, I'm tone deaf. I can't even carry a tune. It's like you, you can. Like <laughs> people are meant to sing. Like our vocal cords are created to make music. Mm -hmm. So pirates. Definitely sing. Yeah. When you get everyone together, like, to sing happy birthday, usually people all, like, find the, you know, find the octave. Oh, I don't know be. who you're singing with because, no, they don't. But. No, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think so. They but sing I, it on their own tune. My wife's family, they they sing the blessing. They go, be, be present at our table, Lord. Be here and everywhere adored. These morsels bless and grant that be my feast. In paradise with thee, amen. But they do it in harmony, like five-part harmony. I love that so much. Yeah, that's you're gonna not sing, my guys. family, but that's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, that's a dream. That is a dream. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But I will say, as we go on, yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me, I have to say it is a song from Pirates. And the way I'll have to try to figure out how we know that that song is, well, let's say it's from the golden age of piracy, Okay. And it was orally just sung throughout the years until it got to the point where everyone was like, oh, yeah, that is a pirate song from the 16th century. Sure. That's my yes on that. Great. Okay. And my very long-winded music explanation as well. I mean, I've already sung twice on this podcast, so I, <laughs> I feel like I'm taking up a lot of oral, oral space right now. Truthfully... <laughs> Oh, Ellie and I sing all the time, so <laughs> yes, about it. it's okay. We appreciate it. All right, so tell us what's the truth. Is that song a real pirate song? This is another one of those where it's like partly fact, partly fiction. Ultimately, I'm going to say fact to be controversial. So the it's it's fiction. It's fiction in the sense that you know it's the song that Disney World uses on their ride, Pirates of the Caribbean, right? And that's mm. like where it became most popular. And mostly it came from 
Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, where all of our pirate lore comes from, there was this song in there called The Dead Man's Chest. And it has the line, 15 men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. Um, and so that's sort of the, the fictional part of it is that it comes from pop culture and then it was like perpetuated pop culture. But a lot of people do think that, so they would have they would have been singing all over on the ship because it helped them keep in time with each other for like hoisting mm. sails and mm. it kept their spirits buoyed when they were, you know, really, really tired. I have I have a question about that because I heard that that was like, so when that whole sea shanty craze happened, I think I saw a TikTok about it, that that was appropriated from African cultures because they used to have work songs. And that when they came on the slave ships, they had work songs and that it was appropriated from, or was it a thing that was already around? So, like, it's possible that multiple communities across the globe would have had work songs, right? Like, mm. the ancient Greeks had, had okay. probably have work songs on their huge ships that, where they were rowing, right? Like, it helps people keep time. Yeah. It helps people keep their spirits mm-hmm. aloft. We have to also remember that, like, these pirates included a lot of Africans. So mm-hmm. they might have brought some of their specific African work songs onto the ships. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that around the world, even co- cultures that were never in contact with each other had work songs. Um, cool. I might be wrong about that, but like this is what I've read from a couple different sources. And then they were also drunk on the ship the whole time. So you sing a lot <laughs> when you're drunk. Especially us, yes. And so people think that yo-ho would be like a way to like, like yo-ho, yo-ho would have been like a way to kind of like stay in rhythm with certain like pulling ropes. Mm-hmm. And, then the, the, and then the pirate's life for me part, I'm going to claim as truth because that's just the general pirate attitude that we've talked about all season. Like they were deciding to do this very alternative kind of life and they didn't think there was any other better way to live. They loved the freedom that being a pirate came with. And they were like, they, they had made these, like these choices to just live an alternative lifestyle. So I think that the the spirit of the song is very, very truthful. Mm-hmm. I love it. But yeah, we'll never really know if that exact song was there. It's right. not like they had recording Fine. devices on these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that song's made up, but like there's elements of it that are true. That does make me happy to know that like pirates are just singing, drinking, like that's that's that is the pirate's life. That is my life too, to be honest. <laughs> Lisa lives a pirate's life. <laughs> <laughs> I live a pirate life. Just singing and drinking yes. my way through life. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elise, for sharing this fact or fiction with us. Anytime. Also, anyone who's listening, share some of your favorite shanties as we're talking oh, about please. shanties because you know we love them. We do. But we got to dive into the episode. Thank you so much, Elise, for hanging out. See ya. And telling us more about all these shanties. Bye. And we're back. So pretty exciting topic today, Ellie. We are talking about Philip Van Buskirk. I'm so excited because he is such a queer icon, I think. (laughs) So we should Uh, say up front, (laughs) yeah, he wasn't a pirate, which is why Ellie's words, Ellie's like, great. Yeah, I was like, he's not a pirate. But I mean, to be like, we have all of these diaries. So we have so much like scandalous details of his sex life, which Uh, I love it. We're here for. We need a whole episode for sex diaries. That's just the rules. We don't make them. Sex diaries get their own episode. Yes. We talked to expert Matthew Knipp about Van Buskirk and he was lovely. And I'll let him take it from here. Well, Philip Van Buskirk was the son of a Maryland Secretary of State, middle of the 19th century, who at the age of 12 in the year 1846, after his father committed suicide, his mother was left without the means to support him, so she enrolls him in the in the Marines. And she spent the foreseeable future dependent on him and for him to help her out. 
Because he was the son of a Maryland Secretary of State, he was both upper class and literate, but bankrupt and fallen, quote unquote, into the working class, right? So when he gets on ship in 1851, he starts recording in a confessional diary, a diary like, you know, the Puritan confessional diaries, his inner life, his thoughts, his secrets, his deeds. And he, he really thinks of the diary as kind of a, a place where, where if he's doing his work correctly, his spiritual work, he's going to record everything, which causes him a great deal of anxiety and pain, worry that others might see the diary and, and a need to conceal it and hide it. And he, he goes to great lengths to conceal it. Um, Sometimes it gets found. The first edition was thrown overboard by some other sailors where it rests amongst the fishes of the sea, he says. But he's recording his deepest secrets and his fears. and But not only his own, what makes it really interesting is that he is recording what he sees and what he hears from everybody else as well, right? So over the course of 50 years, he writes a diary that grows to be more than 30 volumes. What B.R. Berg or Barry Berg calls, quote, the most extensive record of introspection ever kept by an American, end quote. So it's this massive collection of diaries, and they're kept in the um, Special Collections Library, the University of Washington Library, which was the only way you could access them, that or microfilm, for a very long time. The first seven years are now on our website at the CUNY Graduate Center in the Commons, where we've transcribed those first years. And we also have microfilm, so you can see the original pages, the original handwriting and stuff. Van Buskirk had no interest in war or world leaders or events around him. He was very interested in the everyday. And he was on the Perry expedition to Japan. He was in China. He served in the Civil War. The guy got around. He was all over the place. But mostly, mostly he's keeping elaborate charts of what he ate, what he drank. And he keeps charts of these things in relationships to how many times he masturbates and how many times he has nocturnal emissions. Because through the reading of uh, reform liturgy, literature, anti-onanist, anti-masturbation tracts, right, he has come to believe, self-identify, self-nominate as an onanist. And this is the greatest problem of his life. And it's what he seeks to, in part, it's what he seeks to resolve by keeping a diary is to reduce his nocturnal emissions and to reduce his incidences of masturbation, which to him means alone or with another or in groups, because masturbation in the world of these ships was was initiatory. Other sailors introduced younger sailors into the practice. It was public, it was publicly practiced, and it was communal. It was often done in groups. So Van Busker keeps, keeps falling into that. He can't stop masturbating, and he records all of this with a great deal of anxiety and fear, shame, embarrassment in his diary, which, you know, it's just one reason why he's so credible, because he's, some historians have accused him of like, kind of being a gay guy, making notches on his post, right, about the number of guys that he slept with, but that's a total misreading. He's deeply ashamed of these things, which he reads as moral failures, failure to live up to the the ego ideals that his mother, his family, and his class position have put upon him. Wait, Lisa, what's an onanist? 
So an onanist is just someone who masturbates. So today I learned that I am an onanist, as (laughs) I'm sure we all are. Everyone is an onanist. (laughs) We hope. (laughs) Please, if you're not an onanist, take the time to become an onanist today. This is a a sponsored PSA from the onanists (laughs) of America. (laughs) I just can't imagine writing a diary entry every time I masturbated. Like, what do you say? Just like masturbated? Didn't masturbate. Well, and... Philip was also writing about it and also all of his feelings about it, which is like we're in the Victorian era. This is very lesbian of him. Yeah, right? (laughs) So many feelings. (laughs) But there's a lot of shame around sex. So it is like very interesting to have this piece of literature that somebody recorded talking about like their feelings about sex during the time. Yeah, just generally, like I just feel like I haven't recorded enough data in my life, even though we're kind of like recording our whole lives on social media all the time. But the fact that this turned out to be like a significant resource for historians studying maritime sexuality is super cool. And we're going to hear a bit more about that. So the diaries grant a real window, a real kind of open window, you know, a deep description into working class men, what they thought about sex, because he's, he's writing down what he says, what he does, what his peers say, what they're doing, their behavior, their thinking how the culture around them influenced their thinking and behavior, how the literature he's passing around, this anti-onanist literature, affected him and affected others. And it's a fascinating window into this culture before the world got split into two by the arrival of sexuality, right? Before heterosexuality, before homosexuality, right? These concepts, these ideas, hetero or homo, are meaningless to these guys. They never mention them. They never talk about them. There's no sense in the diaries anywhere of anybody having an identity that somehow is attached to object choice that's that's in, that's delible and lasting. Sex is always a temptation that anyone in the working class can fall into at any time. And it doesn't matter how many times you have it. When you go into port, you go back to your girlfriends and your wife. So there's an amazing fluidity in this culture and an amazing lack of sexual identity, which is startling. And when we get to the sections where you asked me to share a couple of favorite passages, we're going to look at one of those really close that kind of foregrounds that reality. So Van Busker, because he's this deeply interpolated onanist, right, laced with shame and foreboding, and the reform literature taught that if you masturbated, it was going to affect your health, your children's health, your spouse's health, all the way to the health of the nation, right? So it put a lot of weight on people's shoulders. And Van Buskirk was an acolyte on bended knee. And he read this stuff, he believed it, he internalized it, and it scared the bejesus out of him, right? So he's focusing a great deal of energy on trying to reform himself, but also running around ship handing out pamphlets trying to convince everybody else that they shouldn't be masturbating either. And in that culture, in that space, this is fodder for public conversation, right? Under the boom cover, where men are looking for sex with other men, talking about who's available, talking about who they did, who they want to do. So he's running around passing out this literature, and this is the working class. According to Van Buskirk, almost none of them could read or write, and they were they were decidedly not interested in his reformist zeal, in his messages. In fact, you know, their hero was Davy Crockett. They desired sexual release. They thought it was good for them. And we're going to see that in the passages later also. 
so Van Buskirk really is a as a a man out of place, a man without a home, in a, in a working class world where his identifications, his self understanding is completely formed by middle class notions of self control, thrift, self improvement, and the working class sailors around him are kind of not into that. So he keeps a diary. Uh, about all of this stuff, a diary that he never intended anyone to read. Occasionally he lets somebody else read it, but he'll like cover up passages and make them promise not to go there. Stuff like that. The stuff that he considers really deeply shameful. So this is like when I was in high school and I read my <laughs> sister's diary. Sorry, in a cat. But, but, you know, if you're writing a diary, some you have to know someone's going to find it. You know, like if you have a a sign on the front that's like, please do not read. Like, I feel (laughs) like people just want to read it more. Like, that's how it goes. Also, like, you don't know what's going to happen many years in the future. I definitely like I must my parents must have my teenage diaries. I used to like keep a diary like pretty consistently as a kid. And also like me and my best friend used to write each other letters every single day. Every day we went to school together and we would write each other a 10 page letter in the time between going home from school and going to school the next day. What the fuck were we talking about? We were 14 years old. <laughs> like, there's nothing that happened in that time. No, I, <laughs> for my college graduation, my grandmother printed out all of the emails that I sent her over the years. Oh and goodness. I do not know what I was thinking. I was telling my grandmother very, like, I was like, so I went on a date with this boy the other night. He's pretty hot, if I do say so myself. I'm like, what are you talking about to your grandmother, Ellie? Like, why are you doing this? But like, you have it, right? Like, there are, there is even more documented now. Like, Instagram stories are going to be like the relics that people are studying in hundreds of years, which is so crazy. Which is so interesting. I used to actually send emails when I first moved overseas. I used to be pretty diligent about like sending emails back to my friend, like my close friends, also, just because otherwise you just end up having the same conversation like every time you talk to them. I'm not really good at keeping in touch on the phone anyway, but I haven't been doing that. I've been thinking about doing it lately and, you know, maybe I need to document my life yeah. in this way. So that people can see it. But I'm curious, right? Sailors were throwing his diaries overboard. <laughs> so how did those survive? I've not done a lot of research in this area, but I know that the University of Washington libraries acquired them around 1902. It was shortly after he stopped writing and shortly after he died. And I I think the secret is that, or the the details of this acquisition have something to do with the fact that he never married. So he had no immediate spouse. He had no children. He only had relatively distant relatives. And Van Buskirk wrote voluminously and copiously. And, And while, you know, I have said that his concerns were very focused on his own personal anxieties. He did reference all these other things, right? What he ate, where he was, the weather, who was in charge. He was on the Perry expedition. He made notes about that. He wrote voluminously about his experiences in China. So there are boxes and boxes of them, right? So the relatives, the distant relatives of his inherited these and his friends. And they were all like, you know, who reads who reads their cousin's diaries, right? Especially somebody who's kind of a social misfit, right? And 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 never really fit in, never married, never had kids. He 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 died unknown, right? And like, okay, maybe these diaries will be important to somebody some way for some reason. So they they bunch them all up and they ship them off to the University of Washington libraries. 
I suspect, pretty unsure, pretty unclear about the kind of sexual contents that are in there. So what have these diaries taught us about sexuality at sea in this time period? Some of the things that we learned from these diaries are that there were a variety of same-sex behavior that was commonplace between working class members of the Navy at the time. Masturbation, which they called shaking or giving a yankum or going chaw for chaw in groups, in pairs, which they did with and for and to each other. Masturbation, which was uh, initiatory, communal, initiatory in the sense that the older members would teach the younger members. I remember Van Buskirk entered the Navy at 12. Well, he was a Marine serving in the Navy as a drummer, but anyway, it was initiative, it was communal, and it was public, and it was talked about, right? So it's this fascinating kind of public sexual culture. Also, these sailors coupled, they didn't just masturbate together, but they formed intimate relationships with each other that were clearly, from the evidence of the diaries, they were reciprocal, they were interracial, and they were not reliably violent or coercive. They were publicly acknowledged and structural. They could be durable and loving even when they were asymmetrical in other ways like age or rank, status. In fact, some people, including some people on your podcast, have talked about, have used the word rape to describe these relationships. And, and Van Busker does say that young boys can be coerced into these relationships, but he says that once. And then he fills thousands and thousands of pages of complaint about how boys have no interest in avoiding these relationships, how they, how they come under his protective wings and he doesn't have sex with them, or he does sometimes, but not always. He, he falls in love with young, innocent boys that he thinks are pure and that he thinks he can protect. But inevitably, he discovers that these boys are having sex with other men. And then he has to break off his relationship because they're no longer up to his standards for friendship. So while he does say that they're sometimes coerced, the bigger problem is that they're all having sex all the time, and that's exactly what they want to be doing. And they they want to be entering into these relationships. In one instance, he even records a couple that exchanged gold rings. This is not unusual, right? I mean, this is not unique to Van Buskirk. We see the same thing in the Pacific Northwest in Peter Bogue's work with quote-unquote hobo culture, right? With the the punks and the the older men, these relationships having a, a reciprocality where they, they each get something from each other, right? Another thing we learned from the diaries is that these sailors didn't really feel any need to restrict their sexual behavior to private spaces. They were happy to take advantage of private spaces, but it wasn't necessary. Living before sexuality split the world in two, sailors were also free of the foreclosures, foreclosures associated with modern sexual identities. So to the extent that we see anxieties forming around same-sex intimacy in the diaries, these anxieties are reformist, moral, and religious. They're not identitarian. So these men who had sex with other men and boys, boys that had sex with men and other boys, didn't feel that these relationships had anything to do with how they felt about themselves as men. It didn't make them a different kind of man. In fact, it made them just common men. It didn't mark them as having an identity in their own self-understanding or in the understanding of others, including the upper-class sailors who 
knew this was happening, saw it happening, and turned a blind eye. And then these men who had sex with boys and men, and boys who had sex with men and boys, you know, when they went into port, went into port and had sex with prostitutes, uh, but also brought boys back, sold themselves, prostituted themselves for cash or for coffee. It was a lively sexual world, according to Van Buskirk. It's hard to know about other ships, but it's not hard to know about other working class environments that are predominantly male-male, the Pacific Northwest, agricultural, lumbering, mining spaces, prison ships. George Baxter Grundy wrote a really interesting letter to Her Majesty's government complaining about the men who have sex with boys and even, quote-unquote, marry each other and consider themselves married. And the evidence is not from Van Buskirk alone. So if all this was so common, then what was Van Buskirk's hang-up and shame around masturbation? It all comes down to ejaculation, which Matthew talks about next. Living before sexuality, right before the turn of the century, and before we had homo and hetero identities, these sailors were really, they were remarkably free of the kind of foreclosures that we associate with modern identities, right? This idea that I'm gay, that means I don't have sex with women, or if I'm straight, that means I don't have sex with people of my same sex or my same gender, right? But those foreclosures, that kind of ew, that kind of I don't do that, that, that kind of rejection that's in the psyche, right? So I mentioned the anxieties that form around same-sex intimacy. They weren't those kinds of modern uh, fears of being considered different or abnormal or perverse. They were about moral and religious objections, right? Even though, even while Van Buskirk says, I love sensual pleasure, but I will not fornicate because I love God. Not because I'm afraid it'll make people think I'm gay or a homo or queer or anything like that. I will not fornicate because it will kill my health. It'll destroy my future marriage, my future children. God will frown upon me. I'll be banished from good society and from the, and from the hosts of heaven who will lock me out of the gate. That kind of thing, right? Well, how does one stop one's nocturnal emissions? You can't, right? But he believed you could because he read all of this nonsense saying that saying that, that he could, right? That he was morally responsible, uh, right? The center of the crime is not the dream, the passion, the touching, the kissing, the hugging. The center of the crime is ejaculation, right? Which is, which is the weakening of the system because it's the loss of all this vital fluid. So you're literally, you know, ejaculating away your health and your future. Oh, and he agonizes over it. He's like a gay guy in the closet, you know, just self-loathing and hating. And, and, and as a gay guy in a closet or a, or a lesbian in the closet, he is terrified. He doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't go to doctors. He doesn't describe his problem with them because he's too ashamed of it. He really thinks it's something that he brought upon himself because he started this habit of masturbating and having nocturnal emissions when he was too young and it's just spiraled out of control. This is just really heartbreaking. Like, okay, so it's the point where you start policing like how people feel. Like people have bad impulses, right? Yeah. So it's really sad that like, even though he's not having like, I don't know, even though he's just masturbating, thinking about men, he still feels guilty. Like that's horrible. Yeah, and it's also just like, I think a thing that a lot of people still deal with today of like, you see people who are in like mixed sexuality marriages, right? Mm. Where they're like, well, I am gay. Like I 
think gay thoughts. I would like to have gay sex. However, like I have so much shame about it. I'm choosing to live a life that I don't actually want to live. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's also interesting to think about. It's not Matthew was saying it's not that Van Buskirk hated himself for being gay or even having relationships with men. It was specifically the ejaculation that he considered the sin because of all of the literature he'd been reading. They had a completely different conception of sexuality back then in those settings, just like in season one, how differently the Greeks viewed sexuality from how we view it. What's really interesting here, right, is how unassimilable the way these guys think about sexuality and identity is to our modern way of thinking about it, right? Joe pays lip service to reform literature and upper class values to Van Buskirk while paying no attention to them in his, in his real life. But notice how he says that he likes women too well to masturbate. I mean, this is of a page with reform literature, right? That if you, if you masturbate, you're going to damage yourself you're going to damage the health of your family, and therefore you're going to spiral down into this well of sensuality from which you can never recover, right? So, so Joe is afraid to masturbate by himself because what he really doesn't want and what he fears is the center of the crime, which is ejaculation, because that's what harms you, right? But he has no problem doing it with other men as long as he himself doesn't ejaculate, doesn't come. Right? There is nowhere in the thousands of pages in this journal where it is suggested that men hugging, kissing, any of that, that kind of those kinds of intimacies is problematic other than the center of the crime. So Van Buskirk historians always wondered to what degree this reform literature influenced those who read it. Right? Did they read it and believe it? Did they read it and reject it? We get all kinds of different responses here from different sailors from different environments, right? But we see that Van Buskirk is a pretty pious, tortured soul because of it, right? Because of his reading of reform literature. And that piety and that self-righteousness, you know, interferes in all of his relationships and, and stops him leaves him feeling lonely, neglected, shameful, and isolated for years. So these sailors lived in a world that was both homosocial and homoerotic, which wasn't reliable, reliably hostile to queer potentialities. And they didn't have really any interest in notions of abstract civic fraternity or national ideals. Van Buskirk, you know, is attempting to professionalize his peers by going around and uh, trying to get them to conform to upper-class standards, and he just fails time and again, and he's ridiculed for it all, all the time. He thinks they respect him for his his unswerving commitment to his high, lofty ideals and his moral moral convictions, but that's just not true. Seems like a really weird line to draw. <laughs> yes, but you know? the, the liter- it seems like he was reading a lot that that was where the line was drawn. <laughs> Anyway, can we hear some of these diaries? I really want to hear them. Yes. The first passage is about chicken ships, where older sailors would be in relationships with younger sailors who they called their chickens. So we're going to hear about that now. So the beginning of the diaries talk about how Van Buskirk is interested in 
cleaning up and helping two guys maintain a friendship with each other, Joseph and the imp. And he starts off thinking that Joseph is a remarkably innocent, religiously trained, Episcopalian, upper class, good boy, and that the imp is just an, an evil working class guy out to destroy Joseph. So he finds a relationship with these two guys. And at a certain point, they end up sleeping together, Joseph and Van Buskirk start sleeping together and a quartermaster has a kind of a judgmental conversation with uh, teasing kind of judgmental nosing into Van Buskirk's business trying to figure out what's going on so this entrance from the diary it starts with Van Buskirk Van Buskirk's notes and then there's a conversation okay he says suspicious conduct since the 17th of this month I have every night shared my palate with Joe and this conduct is food for scandal. A quartermaster, quick to criminate, attacked me the other day with, Well, you lays along a side o' boys nights, o' nights now, do you? Upon which ensued the following dialogue. This is Van Buskirk. Of late days I raid a chicken, to be sure. What next? Quartermaster says. Why, ain't you ashamed of yourself to have a boy alongside of you all night? Van Buskirk says. Not exactly, considering who the boy is, and that nothing bad results from our sleeping together. Quartermaster. Who the boy is? Why, that boy would... Blank, blank, blank. A jackass. Van Buskirk. I don't care if he would... Blank, 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 blank. A jackass. I know that he don't... Blank, 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 blank. Me. Every night passed with me by the boy is a night spent in innocence. When he sleeps with me, he is out of harm's way. If he didn't sleep with me... He'd certainly sleep with somebody else, and in that case, bad consequences might indeed result. Quartermaster. Oh, hell, now do you mean to say that you sleeps along a side boys o' nights and don't do nothing? And Buskirk. Well, now you may as well drop the subject. I see you a little more interested than you ought to be. You are jealous. Yeah, he's he's a moralist, right? And a and an onanist, and he's trying to He's trying to teach and catechize and, and lead and not, not, being very, not being very successful at it. So he's, he's snuggled up to Joe and he thinks he's protecting Joe, but Joe gets tired of his platonic company and, and departs for another guy who Van Buskirk believes is a little more willing to put out. Of course, this, this, this tweaks Van Buskirk. So here's another entry. Boy, Joe and me. This afternoon, I put into his hands Richeron's physiology and directed his attention to the section on habit, and the narrative therein continued of the wretched shepherd boy. It's a story about a shepherd boy who masturbated so much that his penis shredded, shredded to bits, fell off, and he ended up dying as a result. One of these spectacular stories that reformed literature put in to scare people who masturbated, right? After Joe had read a while, he stopped and asked, Buskirk, why do you give me such as this to read? To which I answered, because you are not fit to read anything else. And this good boy, question mark, unhesitatingly followed my answer with, Buskirk, you are mistaken to in me. Indeed you are. I like women too well to do that to myself. Notice, notice he says, I like women too well to, to commit onanism by myself alone, right? Uh, I acknowledge doing it for other men, 
But upon my word, I haven't done it to myself since I've been in the ship except once. Silence, silence, said I. I know already the whole extent of your iniquity, but I'd rather hear you deny your crimes than confess so shamelessly, so shut up. Oh, poor Phil. It makes me so It actually makes me really sad. Our shanty today is actually about Van Buskirk's breakup with Joseph, which makes for a really good breakup song. Not going <laughs> to lie. Our next passage is about something we've been chatting about a little bit. Ejaculation. Ooh. Seems that everybody who writes about Van Buskirk points to this passage sooner or later. It's a conversation that Van Buskirk has with an older sailor by the name of Old White, or that's his nickname anyway. And Old White is a, you'll notice in this passage that he's an ardent defender of the man-boy or man-man practice of chickenship, right? He thinks this is a good thing. He thinks that that if if men don't come if men don't ejaculate biles and pimples and pus will come out all over them that you have to ejaculate or you'll become sick diametrically opposed perspective right working class perspective versus van buskirk's upper class perspective all right so here's van buskirk conversation last night with an old sailor on the subject of manual pollution van buskirk well white What's your opinion of those men who have to do with boys? If you were king, wouldn't you kill every one of them? White. Yes, every fellow that lives ashore and does that, that in italics, I'd shoot him. Yes, by I'd shoot him. Van Buskirk. And if you had a navy, wouldn't you kill every man in it found guilty of that in italics again? White. No. What can a feller do? Three years at sea and hardly any chance to have a woman? I tell you, drummer, a feller must do so in italics. Biles and pimples and corruption will come out all over his body if he don't. Van Buskirk. White, you have given me your, your opinion candidly and openly. I'll be equally and candid with you. And then in italics. If I were king, I would kill every man at sea or ashore found guilty of this dreadful practice, and I would never have mercy. See here, have you ever read any books on the subject? White. No. Van Buskirk. Well, you are most damnably mistaken about this practice being healthy! Exclamation point, and in italics. I'll lend you a little book tomorrow that tells you all about it. White. Thank you. I'll read it. Well... We have reason to doubt that Old White never read it, never paid any attention to it, right? Doesn't come up again in the journals. So you see the tension between working class sailors who desire sexual release, believe it's healthy for them, and Van Buskirk was running, running around wagging his finger, pointing at everyone, and chastising people for their, for their man-on-boy and man-on-man actions. Shout out to Old White, who knows where it's at. Old White is the healthiest of all of the pirates. To be fair, <laughs> if if old if if Philip read contemporary literature, <laughs> he would be like, "Oh, Old White might have been right." Yes. So here's another passage about Van Buskirk and how he was really tortured about sex on the ship. So Van Buskirk believes that he is respected for the purity of his morals. It is thought of me that I am too proud, too high-minded to do any mean, groveling thing. 
But one sailor knows better, and that's the yeoman. The yeoman, quote, knows me to have done mean and detestable things, end quote, by which he doesn't mean rape or acquiescence to power. He means that he submitted to passion and desire, and he failed the sublimation that his mother and his class ideals expect of him, and he fell into what he refers to as the dirtiest immorality. The dirtiest immorality of the trinity of pleasures that sailors routinely participated in, according to Van Buskirk, rum, tobacco, and, quote, the occasional indulgence of unnatural commerce with boys, end quote, that constitute to Van Buskirk the sailor's irresistible heaven. So here he says, this, he writes this about the yeoman. He took me in an hour of weakness, and after violating nature in my own person, found it easy then to have me violate nature in his person. Note the kind of reciprocity then. And Buskirk hates the yeoman for seducing him, but total reciprocity back and forth. Sounds like a place I want to be. The Trinity, I mean, of, the Trinity of Pleasures. I love it. I love it. It's the pirate's it. life for you, Lisa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the pirate's life for me. And Van Buskirk fell into the pirate's life. Eventually, he succumbed to the Trinity of Pleasures. We all should. We're already here for a short time. We should live it up. We should all. We should have all the pleasures. You're right. Anyway, in very exciting news, you can actually go and read these diaries online. Like the actual handwritten photocopies of the originals, which is just super exciting. They're not found in the archive because families and people whose reputations wanted and needed to be protected threw this stuff away. Can you imagine what we would have if, if, if this stuff hadn't been destroyed? One thing that I would like to encourage your listeners to do is, if they're curious in knowing more about Van Buskirk, the first seven years of the diary have been transcribed and are on our website. Also, at the website, which is vanbuskirk.commons.gc.cuny.edu, it's easy to find if you just put my last name in, Knip and Van Buskirk. There you will find a complete transcription, typed out version of this first seven years of the diaries, along with scans of the seven years of the diaries. You can actually see his handwriting and what the diaries actually looked like. And you can read them because the, especially the early years are remarkably legible. Van Buskirk, I think he used porcelain and chalk and he would write out his thoughts and then he would transcribe them into a journal on which he'd very carefully writ, put in all these lines. And so his, his handwriting for the first couple of years, right, is immaculate. And it's fun to read and fun to see. And, and it's fun to see, you know, how he gets so upset because he capitalizes and he, and he, and he italicizes and he, he's out to really make his points. Kind of the way I think you heard me with when I was reading, kind of trying to, kind of trying to get that across. In the meantime, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter. The least representative, probably the pirates in Peter Pan. They're so fanciful, especially Captain Hook. He's so over the top, if you will. You take all the stereotypes of pirates and put them together and that's the, that's the image that you get is something like Captain Hook. Lesbian Pirates is about two badass bitches who take on the 18th century patriarchy 
And the show is based on the real-life lesbian pirates Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed, and it's an irreverent musical comedy. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our next episode will be released on Thursday, the 21st of April. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweetbitter. Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Knorr, and Lisa Charlotte in partnership with Three Springs Media. Our audio engineering is by Sarah Gabrielli. Our production assistant is Thea Smith, and our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Thank you to our guest this week, Matthew Knipp. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. Here's our sea shanty for this week. Like we said before, it is a beautiful breakup shanty (laughs) written and performed by Elise and produced by Joshua. Joseph, how I miss you lying in my arms. All I ever wanted was to save you from harm. My mother sent me off to serve in the Marines. I fell in love with many men but tried to stay clean. I logged every vice and crime in a journal that I lost. When sailors hung in Joseph, how I miss you lying in my arms. All I ever wanted was to save you from harm. You were my little chicken, I thought our love was real. I saw in you a chance to let my shame heal. But that trinity of pleasures, tobacco, rum, and sex, it cast its shadow. Joseph, how I miss you lying in my arms. All I ever wanted was to save you from harm. Now I'm just a lonely man who thinks of you when I sin. Old White says that it's healthy, but I'm just an onanist. I still hand out my pamphlets to save the younger boys, but you Joseph, how I miss you lying in my arms. All I ever wanted was to save you from harm. Joseph, how I miss you lying in my arms. All I ever wanted was to save you from harm.